Have you heard you can listen to your favorite news podcasts ad-free? Good news. With Amazon Music, you have access to the largest catalog of ad-free top podcasts included with your Prime membership. To start listening, download the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash ad-free news podcasts. That's amazon.com slash ad-free news podcasts to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. VR training platforms like the one developed by Fundamental VR and Orbis International are helping surgeons train over and over before operating on real patients. As you practice each skill, the muscle memory starts to develop. Learn more at meta.com slash metaverse impact. This is the John Fugelsang Podcast. Welcome back, friends. You're tuned into Sirius XM Progress and Tell Me Everything with John Fugelsang. I'm Max Burns sitting in for John while he gets some much needed rest. Now, we were just talking about presidential campaign equivalent of an Herbalife supplement salesman, Vivek Ramaswamy. And as fun as the guy is to laugh at, He's also an extremist, anti-trans, anti-democratic nutcase. And the things he's proposing are anything but a laughing matter. And my next guest has been a real leading voice in highlighting just how destructive Republican rhetoric has been to the transgender community, to the gay community, to really everyone who isn't a Republican. Parker Malloy is an award-winning writer who's published all over the place, including at her also award-winning substack, The Present Age which has some of the best political insight around. I encourage you to check it out. She's recently written about everything from Ann Coulter penning a New York Times op-ed to the many failed efforts of Republican transphobes to dehumanize trans people at the ballot box. And we are so lucky to have her joining us now. Parker, welcome to the night shift. Max, it is so great to be here. (laughs) So we've been buddies on Twitter since the olden days. And let me just say, it really is an honor to have you here. You've been a real light in sight on a, in a dark time for trans rights and for the country. And I'm sure our listeners are really curious to know what you make of Vivek Ramaswamy trying to blame trans people for the Florida white supremacist shooting. Yeah. So so basically what happened with that was he was being asked on on Meet the Press. Chuck Todd was asking him about the the manifesto, the quote unquote manifesto of the Jacksonville shooter and that being motivated by racism and he pivots to be to saying why aren't we talking about the nashville trans shooter and referring to the march shooting at uh the covenant school in nashville and the shooter was possibly apparently maybe a trans man so there was that and so for months Republicans have been kind of beating the drum. Where's the manifesto? Why can't we see the manifesto? Why are they hiding the manifesto, et cetera? But I mean, let's, you know, start with the basics. No, police don't typically release the manifesto to the public after a mass shooting. And, you know, whenever a shooter's writings do make it to the public, it's because the shooters themselves have posted it there on the internet somewhere. You know, in um, in May 2022, the shooter in Buffalo, New York, posted a 180 page screed to 4chan, 8chan and a bunch of discord servers. So for a very brief window of time following that, the general public could pretty easily find the manifesto. I sought it out. I downloaded it because I analyzed these things and, and look at them and look for patterns and all that stuff. Uh, but within a couple of days, 
those links started disappearing and they were being taken down and there weren't any news outlets that were promoting them. There was no, here's the Buffalo Shooters Manifesto, go check it out. You know, when we, when we talk yeah. about mass shootings and we talk about motivation, this is one of those areas where we really do just more or less for better or for worse, take police, like take the police's word for it. I mean, that's just kind of how it goes, unless it becomes a big case that, you know, gets gets talked about. But you never see them just release a manifesto to the public because all that does is tell other shooters, here's how you can get everyone on the planet to read your writing. And so anyway, so I was very frustrated by this because, you know, all the release the manifesto stuff, you know, the Jacksonville shooter, they, they did not release the manifesto. I mean, what happened was the Jacksonville sh Sheriff, uh, TK Waters, he, during a news conference, he said, you know, quote, that the shooter targeted a certain group of people and that's black people. Then they know that based on the writing that they saw, the markings that were on the gun and other stuff like that. But in the case of the Nashville shooter, you know, Tennessee Bureau of Investigation Director David Rausch told reporters that it was a mischaracterization to re even refer to the shooter's writings as a manifesto, saying that there weren't any ideological expressions in them and that they had no known motive. So that's kind of that's what's been happening. But what happened immediately after the Nashville shooting back in March, two weeks later, Donald Trump spoke at the NRA convention. And here's what he told the crowd. He said, upon my inauguration, I will direct the FDA to convene an independent outside panel to investigate whether transgender hormone treatments and ideology increase the risk of extreme depression, aggression, and even violence. I think most of us already know the answer. So <laughs> right there, he kind of tell, tells everyone what this is about. This is about taking an instance where a sh one shooter may have been trans and using that to try to enact some sort of anti-trans policy as a whole. And, that's, and that, that really it's, it's is so sort of the end game. I, that, that really is the end game here. And we know that this, this rhetoric never stops at rhetoric. It always metastasizes into some kind of violence against these communities that are being vilified. I, I think 2023 has been a terrible year for the safety of trans people. We've already seen, by one count, at least 15 transgender or nonconforming people murdered. And the U.S. is third in the world for killings of trans people. I mean, what are other countries doing to address this that we aren't? I mean, that's the that's the scary thing, really, honestly, is is it seems like the anti-trans movement is kind of a, a global thing right now. You have the the, you know, outwardly authoritarian countries, you have Russia, Hungary, you know, uh, th those sorts of, of countries that are enacting explicitly anti-trans laws. Russia just recently enacted a law that makes it more or less illegal for trans people to uh, access healthcare, to change their legal documents, and to more or less exist. And so you've got that, but then you've got other countries that are also taking some steps backwards. You have the UK being very, very weird about trans rights generally as well. This is kind of, this is everywhere right now. And, and that's part of why it's so scary because all of these things are built on how, 
how the how the media, how you know what you see on the news, you know what they tell people about trans people, because trans people very rarely yeah. get a platform to go on Meet the Press, to go on cable news. You know, if these are these are very rare occasions, and it's it's kind of scary because all of this stuff is happening. All of these laws are being pushed. All of these narratives are being formed and they're not being formed by trans people or necessarily by things that trans people do. It's just them picking things up and going, yeah, we're going to make this our big focus right now. I mean, nothing has changed in how trans kids medical treatment has, you know, evaluated in the past decade or so. It's, it's all pretty much the same, but it's because the past two years they've decided to make it sound like, oh, trans activists are trying to trying to turn your kids trans and trying to, you know, groom them and you know all this stuff. That's just, it's so frustrating because I don't know how how do you push back against that, you know? And it's the same thing like when I when I criticized um, the the comments from Meet the Press yesterday, I had people going, why are you defending the Nashville shooter? And I wasn't defending the Nashville shooter. I think yeah. the Nashville shooter is terrible. Obviously, I don't I, I just I'm I'm defending trans people as a whole, because when people say the trans shooter, like, what is that supposed to mean? What is that supposed to tell people? You know, if if someone is a is is white and they're a white supremacist them being a white supremacist has to do with an ideology being trans is not an ideology it's just how some people are yeah and that's people existing yeah and you know and and one of the things that that would come up a lot that was pushed on the right and was was talked about in trump's nra speech was this idea there were there were some graphs that uh donald trump jr of course the the genius of the family. <laughs> um, he was posting on, on Twitter saying, you know, oh, look at look at how disproportionately high all the number of the number of shootings being committed by trans people were. And it listed four different shootings taking place dating back to 2018. And two of those shootings are kind of in doubt whether the person was actually trans, but even if you count all four, that would be four out of 3,561 mass shootings in that time, which comes out to 0.11%. So it's we, one of we all things- know Republicans struggle with numbers. So that's, <laughs> if you're just tuning in, uh, this is Tell Me Everything. I'm talking with writer Parker Malloy about the life and death challenges facing transgender Americans and how we try to build a better future for our most marginalized communities. Now, Parker, I'm actually very curious. We see these Beltway DC consultants often telling Democrats to avoid what one memo calls, quote, thorny social issues like transgender identity ahead of 2024, which to me sounds like they're just saying ignore trans people while Republicans beat on them. And I'm curious how you process seeing something like that coming from Democrats who should be defending these communities. Yeah, it's it's really frustrating because, you know, I, I am trans. So this this does affect me and it, it takes a toll on me because I see this stuff. And I think that a lot of people have this idea that the that the issue that trans people have right now with how things are going is that things aren't moving forward fast enough. But it's not that's not what it what it is at all. And Chris Geidner over at his really great um, law dork Substack yep. had has this this piece about how 
misguided that sort of thinking is about this, of, of, of how the idea that it's, it's trans people being upset that we're not moving forward fast enough, but really it's a rapid move backwards. You know, some, some of these policies that are being put in place are more restrictive of trans people's rights than they have been in decades or ever. You know, a lot of these things just you know, have, having to have teachers get permission if a student wants to go by Joe instead of Joseph. That was something I saw today that, you yeah, know, based the party on of small government. Stigma. Yeah. You know, so, so you have that stuff and things are being taken backwards really fast. And, and there's a lot of reflexive, you know, you'll, you'll see journalists at the New York Times go, well, no, no, we, we're just, we're just trying to find answers to questions about, about trans kids and, and medical care for trans, trans kids or trans, trans women competing in sports. But really what it all comes down to is it's like trans kids that, that doesn't affect me. Trans, like trans people competing in sports, that doesn't affect me. And I think that if you talk to 99% of trans people, they would say, no, those things don't have anything to do with my life. Why are we being attacked? And why are they using those issues to attack trans people being able to just sort of exist in peace? I mean, there are people in Florida who, thanks to Ron DeSantis and his policies that he's he's put in place there in the the you know the surgeon general of, of florida has has tried to enact there are trans adults who are having their refills for hormones denied uh, in in missouri they they tried to enact what uh, essentially would have amounted to a full ban on trans adults accessing health care so anyone who tries to say that this is oh we were, we're just talking about fairness in sports or we're just talking about kids no they're talking about adults they're attacking adults they're criminalizing trans trans adults and one of the things that's so frustrating to me is that people will a lot of people will look at this and they will go yeah i you know i just don't know if i'm fully on board with like all this trans stuff i don't really get it and so they just kind of quietly sit back and go, well, I guess these policies aren't bad, but really it's, it comes down to, to the principle. You don't have to get it to understand that a group of people shouldn't be targeted and tormented simply for who they are. You know, you, the, banning trans people from, from public restrooms, what, what does that do? What is the, what is the point here? We had this discussion. We had this debate over and over in 2016. This, that was a big thing that North Carolina tried to push it. And in the years since then, there hasn't been some massive increase in bathroom related assaults or anything like that. Now they don't even point to, you know, violence in, in restrooms. They just go, well, we don't want trans people in, in restrooms because we don't like them, you know, we, we don't get them, we don't understand them. And I, and I really hope that, that more people will set aside whether they fully get it, because you don't have to get it. You don't have to understand it to understand that what's happening right now, a group being targeted is wrong. I mean, it's just a principle thing. It's, yeah. you know, uh, and, and you'll see a lot of stats that get that pushed out when the Washington Post wrote a story about how the support for and the Republican anti-trans policies, one of the things they cited, they were like, well, 52% of Americans don't believe that you could be a gender other than what you are at birth. Like as though that has anything to do with legal rights 
or or anything like that because it doesn't i mean and and that would be an absurd way to to measure that imagine being like well uh, 30% of americans aren't aren't christian so you know i i guess we should you know they they think christianity should be illegal like obviously that would wouldn't make sense and we wouldn't yeah. even entertain something like that but when it's a small group that we almost never hear from that is always being targeted that is always being painted as monsters i mean i haven't seen any of the big like trans rights groups or lgbt rights groups way in in a big way like no one was like yeah leah thomas she should be able to race whoever whenever it was the the position was always groups like the ncaa are free to make whatever policies they want to make the olympics can make what policies they want to make pro sports can do that too this shouldn't be something that republicans in state legislatures are enacting bans on and making it go down to kindergarten you know the, I, I think that's actually things. a great point I, it's a fantastic point and it's because so much of it is manufactured yeah i mean we know that that even if even if a slight majority of americans say they maybe don't understand fully trans people in, in a way that that they can explain we see that a super majority of americans strongly favor adding more protections for transgender americans from discrimination and the only way Republicans get around that is by creating these false divisions of asking them what they think about sports, bathrooms, mm -hmm. schools, and creating these wedge issues, just like they've done in the past on other social issues. And they're false dichotomies. It's just to make people forget that at the end of the day, what they're asking you is, will you be complacent as we take rights away from these people? Yeah. And and I think that as we've seen with in, in the post-Dobbs world, we've seen how they will, there's an effort to use wins in one area to take away rights for people in other areas. A lot of the, the defenses of the anti-trans laws that are being passed are, are citing things in the Dobbs decision, the, the, the stuff about there not being, you know, whether there was a part of our nation's history and, you know, tradition, stuff like that. Like all of that stuff comes from the Dobbs decision and all of it is, is connected because what you know trans rights essentially come down to bodily autonomy yep. and same thing when it when it comes to abortion and same thing when it comes to a whole host of things and so that's why i really hope that more people set aside whether they get it it's okay not to get it you know you don't and trans people aren't actually going to to bite your head off if you mess up a pronoun like that's these things are it, it's 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 hard to kind of push back against a lot of the stereotypes, you know, yeah. but I, I think that people need to understand that these, these issues are connected. And what I think trans people want just as much as anyone wants is just to be able to live their lives in peace. You know, not, most trans people are not trying to figure out how they can win, you know, a WNBA championship or, you know, I like, I don't care if, if a, a kid ends up being trans, I just hope that if if a, a, someone is trans, that they get the support and the help they need. You know, that's that's all anyone wants. All of this, like, oh, you're trying to recruit stuff. It just doesn't make sense. Well, it's it's the Republican Party, so it's safe to say if they're saying it, it doesn't make sense. Parker, you you have to promise you'll come back and chat with us again because this has been really fascinating. Yeah, of and, course. 
And in the time we've got left, let folks know how they can find you and where they can read your Substack because I encourage people to do it. Sure. Uh, yeah, you can find me on uh, Twitter slash X slash whatever Elon Musk is calling it this week uh, at Parker Malloy, P-A-R-K-E-R-M-O-L-L-O-Y. And my Substack is at read tpa as in the present age so read tpa.com and uh yeah you can people can subscribe for free i usually send out about three or four newsletters a week i don't know how you keep up the pace honestly it's incredible that was my guest writer parker malloy and definitely go follow her over on twitter and on substack you will not regret it you're listening to sirius xm progress stick around Professional welder Shayna Ford used VR training developed by ForgeFX to hone her skills as a welder. The more time that you spend practicing it, that's what separates a good welder from a great welder. VR training can help students like Shayna repeatedly practice specific skills. Virtual reality definitely helps because the more muscle memory that you have, the smoother your weld is. Explore more stories like Shayna's at meta.com slash metaverseimpact. As you write your life story, you're far from finished. Are you looking to close the book on your job? Maybe turn a page in your career. Be Continued at the Georgetown University School of Continuing Studies. Our professional master's degrees and certificates are designed to meet you where you are and take you where you want to go. At Georgetown SCS, the learning never stops, and neither do you. Write your next chapter. Be continued at scs.georgetown.edu slash podcast. Well, folks, we are rapidly reaching the end of another hour of Tell Me Everything with John Fugelsang. I'm Max Burns sitting in for John while he recharges for the long, long fight ahead. And I want to jump right over to the phones. I want to get to Brian. Uh, hi, Max. Um, great, great chat. I'm doing well. Great chat with um, uh, Joe Walsh. I never liked that guy, but now I'm a little more friendly towards him. Uh, <laughs> but anyways, yeah, uh, Brian Karams is just amazing. He's just fantastic, and I think he's so right on about local newspapers and press and that I, I'm thinking as you, he, you were talking with him, and I heard him on Dean's show earlier. You know, I think that has something to do with the uh, kind of the dumbing down of the population as well. Um, that kind of like what he was saying, that, um, you know, there just isn't a lot of local education of not necessarily true education, like going to school and stuff, but education of what's going on in the neighborhood or in, in your county or what have yeah. you, kind of like what Sean was talking about. But anyway. Yeah, people feel really isolated from their communities. And it's, it's by design. I mean, Republicans, despite what Donald Trump says, they know how to read surveys and polls. And they see that this, this data that has been consistent for decades, that the more education a person has, the more liberal they are, the more likely they are to support Democrats. In a country where education is an existential threat to your party, you're by nature going to do everything you can to destroy education. And they're really, they're succeeding in a lot of these states. Yeah. And, and, um, and this whole uh, 
uh, Moms for Liberty. I mean, those Moms for Liberty, they have no idea what liberty is. They're against liberty. So anyways, that whole thing is, and you know, there's no local papers to call call that out or go into depth on, like somebody was saying there were only 300 people voted in the, was that you maybe said that about the, uh, the school board elections in like, yeah. were in Florida or something? Yeah, about about 120 votes in one of them. It's it's remarkable. It's unbelievable. In a, in a control, you, I mean, it, the whole thing is just, uh, to me, it's all pretty obscene. But anyways, my other thought is on, for, well, first of all, for like what Sean, dovetailing on what Sean says, I've been calling senators and congresspeople that the uh, president or um, these other people who have worked on the infrastructure bill and uh, the like need to go on RFD radio, which is 147 on Sirius XM. And that reaches a lot of these rural people in their combines, out on their tractors, in their pickup trucks, because um, they've got quite a, I think, quite a wide and broad um, listenership or RFD TV uh, viewership. And I think that would no, be an interesting way to approach and educate and at least humanize Dem- Democrats to these rural people. Yeah, and it's it's absolutely true. I mean, that we need to expand how we're talking and who we're talking to. I've seen these people who say, don't go on Fox News, don't talk on Republican outlets, but you have got to at least attempt to persuade people. If we just surrender them and say they're lost to Trumpism, we can't be shocked when they turn around and vote for Donald Trump. If they feel like half of their country is making no effort to even engage them, then then what do we think is going to happen? I mean, you need a minimum of effort. Yeah. Yeah, and this whole thing is just, to me, it's a no-brainer that uh, going on to the RFD radio or TV, it's uh, quick and easy. You know, you, you hit a lot of people, and you could talk about agriculture issues like Biden's uh, ag secretary is the first guy, uh, cabinet secretary, ever walk on a picket line with the John Deere strikers. And um, yeah. so there's stuff like that. And uh, anyways, um, quick, um, before I think the top of the hour reaches, and I'm also <laughs> curious as an autopsy on the education department after Betsy DeVos left. What the, what the hell did that crazy woman do in our educational, you know, department? Uh, and what what mess was that in? And we haven't heard anything public or whatever that anybody's found about her leaving. Oh, God, she's the head of that Hillsborough College and, and uh, all kinds of crazy stuff. Yeah, that, that nightmare factory. Brian, we got to jump to a quick break, but I appreciate your call. I think you're spot on. We've only heard about the Department of Education when there was chaos under Betsy DeVos. Now it's become something I haven't seen a headline about it in months. It would be really interesting to see how they're recovering if they are. We got a lot of show left, folks, but we need to get to this quick break. So stay right where you are. We got lots more Tell Me Everything coming up right after this. everybody, it's Michael Steele, host of the Michael Steele Podcast. Each week, I discuss key political and cultural issues joined by America's leading activists, experts, and academics for conversations that transcend political boundaries. And that's the point. I want you to join me as we work through real solutions, have honest conversations, just keeping it real, and having a little fun on the side. So listen to the Michael Steele Podcast on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Freaker or wherever you get your podcasts on, because you know I love it when you do.
Hey folks, welcome back to Tell Me Everything with John Fugelsang. I'm Max Burns, sitting in for John. Now, if you've read any of my work or heard my conversations with John in the past, I think the fight for abortion rights is one of the central issues facing our country right now. And that's because the Republican war on abortion was never designed to stop at just abortion. From bans on contraception to stopping women from leaving states to get abortions where they're legal, the American right is dedicating itself to demolishing a whole host of privacy rights and health protections. But there's another side of this conversation that I think doesn't get talked about nearly enough, and that's crisis pregnancy centers, better known as the bogus anti-abortion clinics that right-wing groups have been using to deceive and lie to women during the most difficult time in their lives. And this is about more than just deception. These aren't really medical facilities capable of offering a standard of care. Take one Massachusetts woman who sued a crisis pregnancy center for failing to diagnose her ectopic pregnancy, which led to a catastrophic medical complication for her. This is the new normal across the country, and that's just fine with Republicans. I'm joined now by Garnet Henderson of Rewire News Group, who has a chilling article out detailing how anti-abortion centers have spent over $600 million in one year to deceive and harm American women, and also by Rewire's Jessica Piclo, who has written about the dangerous grift of crisis pregnancy centers in the past. Thank you so much for taking the time, both of you, to talk with us about this. Thanks for having us. Absolutely. Thank you so much. Now, I want to dig into both of these things, but let me start, Jessica, with some news we just saw today out of Alabama, where the state's Republican attorney general declared in a court filing that he has now discovered the right to prosecute women who leave Alabama to get abortions in states where it's legal. Mm -hmm. Now, am I am I crazy or is this Alabama saying women no longer have the right to travel freely? Absolutely. You're not you're you're correct in uh, your assessment of it. And what we're seeing is the ongoing constitutional crisis that the Dobbs decision has really created uh, the ability to travel from state to state um, for whatever purposes, um, in this case, receiving uh, legal, accessible reproductive health care in the form of abortions is fundamental to our understanding of who is a person and who is a citizen and, and how citizenship works in this country country. And one of the things that we've seen from the Dobb decision is it's really opened the doors to allow conservatives to start to redefine that process, because the only way that Alabama has the ability to reach beyond its state borders and prosecute people for leaving the state to go access something that is legal elsewhere is if the they is if we completely uh, upend our understanding of how citizenship works in this in this country. And that's what they're trying to do, because this is about prioritizing the quote unquote citizenship of a developing pregnancy over the pregnant person. And this idea, I mean, interstate travel and the free travel of people was really a core founding element of this country. And now Alabama is basically saying, if we don't like the reason you're leaving our state, we're going to empower people to either drag you back and mm -hmm. charge you with a crime, or we're going to make it so difficult for you to do that that we're going to have people spying on you. We're going to have people reporting people who are helping. And it really creates an underground system. I mean, this can't be legal, right? 
Well, I mean, I guess we'll see because it'll be legal if the courts say it is. That's where we have landed with Dobbs, you know, and Alabama is not the first state to articulate this. Missouri has flirted with this a little bit. Idaho has flirted with this. Texas notoriously with um, SB8, which we are coming up on the two year anniversary of as well. Um, So this is an idea that's been in circulation in conservative circles for a little while. This is the first time we've seen it so brazenly articulated articulated in a post-Roe, post-Dobbs reality, though. So now, Garnet, I'm curious. It's no coincidence that Alabama has among the highest volumes of crisis pregnancy centers, including things like Save a Life and Real Life Pregnancy Center, Heartbeat International, these really despicable groups. And they've been involved in multiple cases of either not diagnosing or misdiagnosing actual medical complications You write that these groups go to great lengths to hide the amounts uh, and sources of the money that they're getting. Now, why is that? Well, you know, a lot of that work is almost done for them just because there is not a lot of transparency that's required of nonprofit organizations. And most crisis pregnancy centers are 501c3 nonprofit organizations, which of course means that they're not paying income tax, right, on any profits that they make. And this is a tricky thing, honestly, regulation of nonprofits, because if we were to make financial disclosure requirements even more onerous, that would make it harder for some nonprofits that are doing really good work to do their jobs. But I do think what I see in all this data that I have been examining that comes from crisis pregnancy centers, financial filings, that there are definitely some ways that we could boost transparency a little bit that would at least make it easier to understand who is just funneling hundreds of millions of dollars into these centers. And what is the most shocking thing that you found in your research? Because as you point out, the numbers are wildly different from things we've seen reported in the past, far bigger and far more expansive. But I'm curious if anything really jumped out to you as shocking in all of this data crunching. Well, I think one thing that's shocking, first of all, is that we really have no way of knowing how many crisis pregnancy centers there actually are in the United States. So I found 1,607 financial filings from crisis pregnancy centers. We know that there are at least about 2,600. So there are at least about 1,000 more than that. And potentially, there are as many as 4,000 crisis pregnancy centers across the country. So I found that just 1,600 crisis pregnancy centers spent over $605 million in one year, which if we average that out and then multiply it by 4,000, if there are in fact 4,000 of them, they're spending well over a billion dollars a year to provide services that we know are extremely limited at best. And also, as you've mentioned already, to actively harm and endanger the people who come in through their doors. Right. And to to your point, I mean, it's not really a medical facility. It's a place where people are sat down. They're they're talked to sometimes for hours at a time. They're shamed. They're guilted. They're, They're told that abortions can cause sterility. They can cause cancer in women. And it really is almost a propaganda operation. But is there like, could I, for example, go out and, and create a nonprofit and just claim to be a crisis pregnancy center? Is there any licensing I need to go through for that? In almost 
all cases, no. So there are a few crisis pregnancy centers that have started offering limited medical services. And it's precisely because people have started calling them fake clinics, right? Because in almost all cases, they are. They are not real medical facilities, not providing real medical services. So some of them have started to provide very limited medical services. In fact, in some previous reporting, I found that there are quite a few crisis pregnancy centers that show up in CDC directories of places that you can go to get tested for sexually transmitted infections. Um, So in some cases, the federal government is actually sending people to crisis pregnancy centers. Uh, But you're right that the vast majority are still not medical facilities. So no, there are no licensing requirements. And that's part of the reason why we have no no idea how many of them there actually are, because I can't like pull the licenses and look up how many there are in each state. Just what you want from a from a so-called medical institution, right? I mean, right. there's a tendency, there is this this tendency, I think, in the media to think of these as a red state issue. But for example, I mean, here in deep blue New York, crisis pregnancy centers actually outnumber abortion clinics statewide, 120 CPCs, 74 abortion clinics as of last year. And that's even true in New York City. There are four more crisis pregnancy centers than abortion clinics. And I, I have to assume that some of that cash is just going towards really aggressive expansion at the rate they're popping up and the, how well-funded they seem to be. Absolutely. I mean, what we can see looking at their financial records, because they do have to report some details about their expenses based on categories, basically. So we can see that over half of their spending is going to staff compensation and benefits. And in fact, when we look just at some of the largest crisis pregnancy centers with the biggest annual budgets, uh, it's well over 50% of their total spending goes towards staff, which is interesting because they present themselves as these really little mom and pop organizations. You know, it's something that's run by just a bunch of nice grandmas from church. And in fact, we see that they are paying staff to provide what services we're not sure if any they're very limited and so yeah it raises a lot of questions about what are those staff members doing because one thing that we see too is they do have to report how much they spend on advertising and promotional expenses and it looks to be like it's sort of a small part of their overall spending except that doesn't tell us what the staff members are doing, right? So it's very possible that a lot of their paid staff are spending most of their days doing quote unquote outreach, trying to get patients in the door, or as you said, working on expansions, opening new locations. Terrifying. If you're just joining us, uh, this is Tell Me Everything. I'm talking with Garnet Henderson and Jessica Piclo about the dangerous deceptions of crisis pregnancy centers. Jessica, it, it almost feels to me like Republicans in the states are fighting a lot harder to expand and empower these CPCs than Democrats seem to be to defending family planning clinics that actually have standards of care. And I'm curious if you have any thoughts on on how you explain why these Republicans have seemingly been so successful at spreading these everywhere. 
It's a great question. And I think it really gets to the heart of uh, one of the challenges that we've seen in the political fights over abortion rights and access, because uh, these CPCs didn't just pop up overnight. Um, They have been around for a while and really go hand in hand, I think, with Democrats unwillingness to call out conservatives for hiding or shielding activities behind religious activities or institutions. And a really good example of this was the fight over the birth control benefit in Obama in uh, the Affordable Care Act during the Obama administration. And around that same time, we had Democrats unwilling to sort of call out businesses like Hobby Lobby, for example, um, and their sincerely held beliefs as to whether or not contraception was by their standards and uh, abortive fashion. It was all nonsense, but the Democrats played played along with it because of big tent politics, right? What that got us eventually in just sort of playing nice with the anti-choice community in that same time period, we end up with a Supreme Court case a little later in 2016 called Nifla v. Becerra. And this is a case out of California where California had actually passed a series, uh, a law called the the FACT Act that tried to regulate these uh, crisis pregnancy centers. And instead, what we got was a ruling from the Supreme Court that said they actually have a First Amendment right to avoid consumer protection laws. They can be deceptive because it's grounded in religion. And so this is a fight that's been bubbling up in various circles around rights and access to society. And Democrats have largely been unwilling to actually call conservatives and Republicans out on the merits of it. And so we're scrambling. I mean, I was in the courtroom for the arguments. I was I was at the Supreme Court for the arguments in NIFLA and the press uniformly was thinking about these clinics the way that Garnet described how the anti-choice community describes them as these like scrappy little nonprofits that are run by a bunch of grandmothers when in reality they're multi-million dollar operations that are preying, as was articulated in that case, on communities that are vulnerable, whether they're vulnerable because of income, whether they're vulnerable because of a lack of resources um, and access to care, or whether they're vulnerable because they're geographically isolated. Um, it's it's really wild, particularly when you think of how heavily regulated abortion clinics are. No, absolutely. I mean, it, it all seems to come back to this idea that Democrats want to be seen as the adults in the room who are bipartisan and working together and that they're not unreasonable. Republicans don't care. They want to win and take the rights away. I mean, they understand their priorities very clearly. Yeah, I'm, I'm cur- yeah, I agree. It's always about power with the Republicans and not principles. And that's where Democrats mess up. And I'm curious about the level of public awareness about CPCs, because they, obviously they're targeting women who are in an incredibly emotional and difficult time in their life. They're making a, a decision that no one makes lightly. Do women in these states realize they're walking into what's essentially a propaganda clinic? And are there groups that are doing anything to make sure women going into these are aware of what they're walking into? Yeah, so there is something called the Crisis Pregnancy Center map that was actually created by researchers who study crisis pregnancy centers. And you can go on there and you can look up in your location or you can search any location and find the known crisis pregnancy centers in that area. And they did that to help people identify whether or not clinics are real abortion clinics or crisis pregnancy centers. And 
CPCs are very intentionally deceptive. They tend to set up as close as they can to real abortion clinics, or now there are at least a few examples I'm aware of in states where abortion is now illegal and clinics have had to shut down that CPCs have actually opened up in the locations of those shuttered clinics in the hopes of capturing people who are still going to come there looking for help. So they do try to fool people as much as possible. They'll even mimic signage and colors of signs, fonts, things like that. But interestingly, I've spoken to quite a few people who went to CPCs who did know um, where they were going, and they did know that it was a biased and religiously motivated clinic but they needed services. And, you know, something I hear so much from advocates for abortion access is that, especially in states where abortion is now banned, we need funding to provide people with free ultrasounds, because that is one of the main ways that CPCs get people in their doors is they advertise free ultrasounds. And someone who is pregnant and doesn't want to be is nervous. Maybe they want to confirm that pregnancy. They want to figure out how far along they are so they can figure out what to do next. And that's how CPCs get them to come in. But of course, most CPCs are providing non-diagnostic ultrasounds. So they don't even have legitimate trained staff operating that ultrasound machine, which is exactly how you end up with situations like the woman you mentioned in Massachusetts, who's suing a CPC for failing to diagnose her ectopic pregnancy. So I do think there is more awareness to be built around the fact that even if a CPC is advertising a free ultrasound, you can't trust that it's a real diagnostic ultrasound. But also we need some philanthropists to start funding and helping clinics that can no longer provide abortion services stay open so that they can provide services like ultrasounds at low or no cost so that people don't have to go to a crisis pregnancy center. That is a great point. I think we see this every day. We see Republicans passing policies that are regulating clinics essentially out of entire states and then replacing them with these lower quality, completely untrained services. And it's essentially the same sort of hard elbowed business strategy that they want for the private sector everywhere. And people look at Democrats and say, what is what are policymakers doing? But we're also lacking that sort of grassroots and and grass tops effort by donors and by philanthropists to push back on this in states because it is at the heart of state issue correct there's there's not these are regulated largely if at all by state governments yeah i mean because of the case that Jess mentioned niflo v becerra it is tricky to regulate crisis pregnancy centers because the supreme court has determined that they have a first amendment right to basically lie to people However, there are a lot of state lawmakers, there are even some local ordinances where people are trying a new approach, which is more of like a truth in advertising angle. So they're at least trying to stop CPCs from saying, for example, we offer free ultrasounds if what they're offering is a non-diagnostic ultrasound, or even more importantly, a lot of CPCs openly advertise abortion services. And then you get there and it turns out they're not real abortion clinics. So at the very least, some lawmakers are looking at ways to try and stop them from doing that. State attorneys general in a few states have also issued uh, consumer advisories, essentially, about crisis pregnancy centers. 
And so, you know, I think those are steps in the right direction, but there's kind of a big question mark for me on that in terms of how many people actually see that kind of thing and engage with it. But you're absolutely right that there's a lot more to do at the state level. And we know that we have a problem at the top and that we need this to be a sort of whole of the movement approach. But I want to open this up to to both of you, because I think the big question I have is what can regular people in states do to push back against the spread of these pregnancy centers? What can we do as as individuals to actually make a difference here for the better? That's a great question. I do think there are a lot of activist groups that are starting to hold demonstrations outside of crisis pregnancy centers, um, much in the same way that people have been picketing at abortion clinics for decades now, uh, just to try and let people in the local community know that they are not what they say they are. Um, In particular, there's an abortion fund in Texas called the T-Fund that is doing a lot of work around this, raising awareness of crisis pregnancy centers and trying to share the stories of people who have been harmed by them so that people really understand what it is that they're doing. And then I think it's also just really important for people to get curious about do you have abortion providers in your community? Do you have any local abortion clinics? I think a lot of people even who really care about abortion access and want to be aware of what's going on don't actually know that much about abortion access in their own community. And so I think one thing that people can do is learn more about abortion providers in their local community or learn more about how to find abortion services in case they or anyone they know ever needs that. So one site that's really great is called I Need an A. And that's a website where you can look up not only abortion clinics, but telemedicine services where you can get abortion pills. And they'll also help you find abortion funds and practical support organizations. So it's really like a one-stop shop to help you get started figuring out how to get an abortion or to help someone get an abortion, no matter where you are in the country. And I think it would really help for people to familiarize themselves with tools like that as much as possible. I could not agree more. Garnet, Jessica, I really want to thank you again for helping us break this down. I think this is an issue that a ton of our listeners didn't realize was as deep as it was and as well financed as it was. So in the minute or so we have left, let our audience know how they can find you, how they can read your work and and how they can help out. Well, you can find us at rewirenewsgroup.com or on Twitter and Instagram and TikTok now at Rewire News Group. And you can find me on Instagram and Twitter for as long as it exists. Or I guess I should say X now. You can find me on Instagram and X at Garnet Henderson. And uh, I am on those platforms as well um, at, at Hegemami. And thank you so much for having us on and letting us spend this much time talking about it. It's really wild how much money is circulating out there. It really is mind blowing. You've been listening to my guests, Rewire News Group's Garnet Henderson and Jessica Piclo on the deception and danger of right wing crisis pregnancy centers. We have a lot more show ahead right after the break. You're listening to Sirius XM Progress. Stick around. Hey all, Glenn Kirshner here. Friends, I hope you'll join me on my audio podcast, Justice Matters. We talk about not only the legal issues of the day, but we also talk about the need to reform ethics in our government. Here's one example, the oath of office. You know the one. I do solemnly swear to support and defend the Constitution against all enemies, foreign and domestic. 
Let's add 22 words to that oath. Quote, and I will promptly report any instances of crime and or corruption by government officials and employees of which I become aware. Friends, our democracy is worth fighting for. Join us in this fight, because justice matters. Look for Justice Matters wherever you ordinarily find your podcasts. This is Tell Me Everything with John saying I'm Max Burns, sitting in for John this week. Guys, I'm, I'm still furious about the whole Alabama abortion travel bans. And, and that conversation with Garnet and Jessica from Rewire News got me upset all over again. I want to jump right to the phones. We have Mark in Portland, who also wants to chat about abortion. What's on your mind, Mark? Well, it was a fascinating uh, conversation you had with the woman uh, investigating the crisis pregnancy centers. And, you know, to me, this just this just stinks of, of um, laundering money. I mean, hundreds of millions of dollars for a nonprofit. And these aren't legitimate services. They're lying to people. And, uh, you know, you can get an ultrasound, but it's not a legitimate ultrasound. I mean, what is that? I mean, 60 Minutes should be doing an undercover investigation of several of these so-called crisis pregnancy centers across the country. Just go undercover with, you know, hidden microphones and hidden TV or hidden cameras and uh, just start asking some questions, some legitimate questions. I mean, um, to me, I, this this stinks, this stinks of uh, of uh, laundering money. That's what I think. It's hundreds of millions of dollars for nonprofits, and that just doesn't that that doesn't sit well. Um, yeah, not, nonprofits but, not known for being the most most well financed things in the world. And I mean, you and I can go out and start one tonight and buy an ultrasound machine on eBay and just set up and say we're an, an operation, and no one's going to check. They legally can't. You know, and I also wanted to mention the, the, the case in Texas where this woman, she worked for the state of Texas and she was pregnant and uh, she was having some really bad uh, pains in her belly and she, she knew it was her, 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 her pregnancy. And so she asked to be able to leave her job with the state so she can go to the hospital. They said no. And because they knew, they, you know, and so um, ultimately it got so bad, they ultimately let her go. But when she got there, um, the, the they did an operation that the fetus died inside her. Now uh, she's now claiming that that was my baby and you in the state of Texas killed my baby. Well, the state of Texas is saying, no, that was a fetus. Oh, what, which one is it? Is it a baby inside you or is it a fetus inside you? Because now the state of Texas doesn't want to take responsibility uh, for delaying this woman. Cause they, they said this, this, this uh, baby could have been saved had she gotten there right away instead of waiting two or three hours where the state would not let her go. So, I mean, it really is just just cruelty. It is designed to try and intimidate people and to silence people. And they, they don't right. particularly care who dies in the process. We've already seen women who have nearly bled out because of this. And there's not a single apology or statement of contrition or anything. They say it's their fault. Yeah, it's a, it's truly unbelievable. And, uh, you know, uh, hopefully uh, we, we saner heads will prevail and we'll get rid of these, you know, uh, these these draconian laws that punish women for traveling for crying out loud traveling to another state uh, what if, if the woman decides to live in oregon are you going to like find her family who lives in alabama for her leaving and having an abortion in oregon i mean where's the stop right i mean it's ridiculous and it, it, the end result is control but i do i do believe there is a silver lining here to lower everyone's blood pressure a bit is that when we've seen this come up for a vote before actual people, referendums, every single attempt by Republicans 
to ban abortion at the ballot box has failed since Dobbs. Right. Every single one. Yes, Kansas was uh, one that failed there. And, uh, you know, I mean, I think Missouri it may have failed there. I don't know, but, you know, it's uh, Alabama. Boy, this guy, he's really... I mean, some hacker should hack into his medical records and start putting them all over the Internet. I mean, it's just outrageous what he's trying to do to women in Alabama. And uh, HIPAA laws are, are sacrosanct. They're, they're federal. They, they supersede the privacy for, for, for anyone under HIPAA. And you cannot take that. States cannot take that away. And that's just another, you know, stab in the back from these fascists and these states that uh, claim that they're pro-life. They're not pro-life. No, I think I think that's a fantastic point. I mean, the Department of Justice Civil Rights Division needs to be in. Man, we could get HHS in here filing a suit under HIPAA. I think that's a great point that not only are they they disrespecting basic freedom of movement, but they're making a mockery of HIPAA laws that they championed under COVID. You couldn't dare ask someone if they'd been vaccinated in a red state. They'd scream HIPAA violation at you, but they don't have a word to say when they're violating the HIPAA rights of women who are trying to seek abortions. That's how self-servingly cynical it is. Now, I I think, I just, I can't, I can't get over it. But there is, the silver lining is when people vote, abortion bans lose. What we have to do is beat these people at the ballot box every time they come up. And eventually, hopefully, we'll have majorities that will be able to actually codify and protect abortion rights. I thank you so much for the call. I'm Mac Burns, and you are indeed listening to Tell Me Everything, where I'm sitting in for the one and only John Fugel saying this week. You're listening to SiriusXM Progress. 